0: We're talking today about uh, the ultimate challenge. And uh, as we think about that, uh, I thought about how um, we choose to define ourselves by the things that we use to surround us. Uh, you know, we, we choose to surround ourselves with objects uh, and things that are really meaningful to us. Uh, and that's why there are so many uh, people who have collections. You might have collections of different kinds. Um, I just did a, I did a quick search typing in uh, this week top 10 things people collect and there were various um, responses that came back various responses about those top 10 things and this was the most consistent one of these top 10 things that people collect coins some of them might be coin collectors movies uh, stamps uh, video games uh, cds books dolls statues cards and the number 10 surprised me and that was keychains Um, I didn't realize so many people were fascinated with keychains and collected them. Now, some of the other popular items that made some of the other top ten lists were things like pocket knives that people collect, uh, sports cards, you know, baseball, uh, hockey, football, basketball, those things, teacups, comic books, and vintage cars. A lot of people uh, collect vintage cars. I guess you have to be in a certain salary bracket to uh, be able to do that. Uh, The most ridiculous item I saw that people collect, belly button lint you know uh, I think that says something about a lack of personal hygiene but that's another issue now expensive things that people collect and as I go into think about some of these uh, I want you to be thinking about this what is your most uh, precious possession what would you consider to be your most precious possession now think about that thought when we talk about these things okay here are some actual things that people own that they probably consider to be their most precious possession, and that's because of what they paid for it. How about a gold-plated, diamond-studded iPhone? The cost is only $2.97 million, and it's only a 3G model. Or you can own the world's most expensive television called the Prestige HD Supreme Rose Edition. Now listen to this. The outer frame is gold with diamonds, and the inner frame is alligator skin. And it costs only a mere $2.3 million, and it's only a 55-inch screen. A couple of years ago, uh, a billionaire in Mexico bought a 1962 Ferrari 250 uh, from a British owner, and he paid $35 million for it. I would imagine he considers that one of his most precious possessions. Um, if you're an art lover, uh, you could be the owner of a Jackson Pollock piece. I'm not sure who Jackson Pollock is. I didn't look him up, uh, but evidently he gets a lot for his uh, paintings uh, because uh, this particular one entitled Painting Number 5 went for $140 million. Now, if you buy that, you're going to have to have a large space to hang it because it's four feet by eight feet. You know, that's like a regular size sheet of plywood. That's because he drew it. He painted it, whatever it is. On a four by eight sheet of plywood, and you gotta have that to put it up. Now, I think also this week that I saw where a piece of work by Picasso went for, was it $179 million? Somebody paid for Picasso work. That's fantastic. I mean, that's just unreal. Now, uh, have you thought about what your most precious possession is? Well, I can tell you what it is if you haven't figured it out. I can tell you what your precious possession is for every one of you. Because it's the same thing for every one of you. All of you in the choir as well. And that is something that you cannot buy. Something you cannot inherit. Something that you cannot collect. And that is your eternal soul. Your eternal soul should be your, considered to be your most precious possession. Jesus put it this way. He said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And what shall a man or woman give in exchange for his or her soul? See, your soul is more precious and valuable than anything else in all of this world. When the sun and the moon and the stars have all gone cold, your soul will still exist. It will, be repl- it will be still be your eternal soul even when all that the earth has today will be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. All the financial gifts in the world, the gold and all the stocks and all the bonds and all the oil and gasoline, all of those things, they will not, they will not compare to the value of your soul because they will disappear and your soul will not. You see, there was a point in time when you did not exist. But now that you exist, your soul will never cease to exist. Only God, who is eternal in both directions, has existed before anybody else and continues to exist. But from the moment you were born, your soul will exist for all eternity. Long after your physical life is over. And so since your eternal soul is your most valuable possession, then you have to understand that your eternal soul will spend eternity in one of two places either in heaven with God or in hell separated from God and the ultimate challenge in life is to accept Christ as Savior and allow him to be the Lord of your life that's what we find the challenge being in our scripture for today if you look with me in the gospel of Mark chapter 8 beginning in verse 27 Uh, We'll read some incidences here that just unfolded as Jesus was teaching about this great challenge. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ." Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. "'Get behind me, Satan,' he said." You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels Now that message is all about discipleship and that's the ultimate challenge in life for every one of us uh, The best definition of a disciple is a follower of a teacher or a set of teachings and the time that Jesus would walk the earth and teach, he had his disciples that we basically identify as those 12 men. Uh, but all, all rabbis back in that time would teach. And they would have a group of disciples who liked their philosophy about life and their teaching and interpretation perhaps of Scripture. And they would follow after them. And so a disciple is someone who follows after a teacher who learns after a teacher. When we look at the concept of discipleship and following after the Lord Jesus Christ, we see here that the ultimate challenge is that discipleship is a uh, 24-7, 365-day-a-year event. It is a process of faith and maturity and development, of seeking to be that disciple that Christ wants us to be. And I think in this passage of Scripture there are several things that take place In which Jesus reveals to us some of the steps in that process that allow us to accept that ultimate challenge of discipleship. Now here's the first step that I see and it's simply this believe and confess that Jesus is Lord. This incident that we entered into where Jesus asked them here in Mark and you might be more familiar with it I am uh, in Matthew's gospel when he asked them who is it that people say I am well, in Mark's gospel, it takes place about halfway through his 3 year old so ministry. And Jesus wanted to do a little checkup with the disciples and see where he was and what people were saying about him. And he asked, well, who is it that people say I am? And they gave the answer about John the Baptist, some of the other prophets, or Elijah, or whatever. And then he gave that pointed question right to them. He said, who do you say I am? And that same question rings out to us every day. We have to make the right decision. We have to answer that. Peter answered it correctly for once. And he said, you are the Christ. And and just like Jesus looked at those disciples and said, who do you say I am? Every one of us has to answer that same question. And you have to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord and he is also your Savior. Have you done that yet? I hope all of our graduates here in 2015, before you move off from home and go to a place of higher education, you've made that decision. And I want you to listen carefully all the way through this message because it's a challenge for you where you'll be going. Now have you, everybody in here, confess Christ as Savior. See, that's something that we'll be working on so diligently at Vacation Bible School for those students Paul, the apostle, writes in Romans 10, 9 through 10, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. I'm becoming more and more aware of this and the challenge of being a follower of Christ in those early days as I read through Acts And watch on Sunday nights the the series of A.D. as it continues. You see the the point basically uh, in the life of a believer following after Christ as a disciple. And when they would declare that publicly is when they were baptized. And their act of baptism and the declaration they made was a counter revolution. And no wonder the Roman authorities and all the high priests were opposed to them. You see, every Roman citizen once a year, or anybody living in a country under Roman government, once a year had to pay their taxes and confess, saying, Jesus, Caesar, is Lord. But when these radical disciples of Christ became filled with the Holy Spirit, they confessed, Jesus is Lord. And no wonder they were challenged. No wonder they were hunted down. No wonder they were persecuted and put to death. It's because they were committing treason against Caesar and the Roman government. Some places in the world today, confessing Christ as Lord can mean death, death in this world. Well, let me remind you once again, your eternal, eternal destiny depends upon how you answer the question, who is Jesus to you? We've got a little diagram that helps you understand that. See, if you don't have Jesus in your life today, you see that represents the cross over here. The circle represents your life. And you'll notice that in there, that uh, there's a throne shaped like a chair. And that S represents self. If you have not acknowledged Christ as your Savior and repented of your sins and confessed Him as your Savior, then you don't have Christ in your life. He's outside your life and you are calling the shots in your life if you want to be a follower after Christ, then you've got to believe in Jesus and confess Him as Lord. Now, I want us to look at the second step in this process, and it has several points within it. And they all just come right straight out of the incidences here in the text. The second step is then allow Jesus to be Lord of your life. Now, a lot of times I hear that statement, They make Jesus Lord of your life. I think the intent is probably correct, but the verb is not. We don't make Jesus anything. He is Lord. We allow him to become Lord of our life. And there are three things that this text reveals uh, that reveals that process of how we allow Jesus to become Lord of our life. The first step is you have to remove yourself from the throne of your life. See, that deals with our ego and our self-image and our wants and our desires and our life in, in in our little world that we want. You see, sometimes when that ego gets in our way, it causes trouble just like it did for Peter. Jesus had just begun to preach about his impending death. And this is the first of three times that he does so in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 9, 31 and Mark 10, 33 and 34, the other two. And he's talking about the fact that this is why he came. He came to earth to fulfill that mission, that he would go to Jerusalem. He would be persecuted. He would be killed. But on the third day, he would rise again. And Peter's thinking, no, this can't be right for the Messiah. He got it right earlier when he said, you are the Christ. But now he, he rebuked Jesus. And Jesus rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. And he said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus went on to say... If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. see, Simon Peter was filled, I guess, with some selfish pride. And Jesus says, you cannot accept the ultimate challenge and be a disciple of mine unless you deny yourself. And what that means is, not the same as denying yourself of something sweet or something expensive or that kind of thing. But it means you deny yourself ego. You deny your selfish pride and you have to put Christ on the throne in your life. You have to allow him to take that position. You see, we all have a problem with that because we're all sinners and being sinners, we're all self-centered. That's the whole reason that sin entered into the world to begin with, with Adam and Eve. They were selfish. They wanted to disobey God and do what they wanted to do. Now, we got another drawing that shows this image, okay? Here's your life in that circle. And it represents your life with Christ, but yourself on the throne. You see, you got Christ, that cross represents that, but you're still on the throne. You're still calling the shots. Now, what are some characteristics of a life uh, that's self-directed? Well, sometimes there's a legalistic attitude. There are impure thoughts. You live with guilt and worry, discouragement. you got a critical spirit, frustration. There's a sense of aimlessness. You ever, ever watch that? People who are aimless and have no direction in life and don't know what they're going to do. And I think it's because they haven't put Christ in their life the way he's supposed to be. And then there's a lot of fear. And that list goes on to include a poor Bible study and a poor prayer life. And no desire to fellowship with the people of God. It's really the life of the self-centered person. And you think everything is about you. It's all about me. It's all about me. And it's not all about me. It's not all about you. It's all about Jesus. And if you haven't learned that yet, you need to learn it today. Now, the second step then is not only do you have to die to yourself, but you have to to consider yourself dead when you deny yourself. Jesus went on to say, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. If you lived in the time that Jesus spoke these words and you saw a person going through the streets of Jerusalem with a cat carrying a cross, they were going to one place, one place only, only one destination, they were going to die. They were going to die. What does it mean for us to take up our cross today and follow Christ? It doesn't just mean that you wear a necklace with a cross or a bracelet with a cross. It doesn't mean even that you might even have uh, gone through the pain of a tattoo of a cross on your shoulder uh, to, or wherever to, to show that. It doesn't mean you carry a cross in your pocket. You know, you can do that. That's fine. It doesn't mean as some people think that you put up with a lot of stuff in life. You know, some burdens and some, some physical ailments. I've heard people a lot of time talking about from from cancer to bursitis and arthritis and all that, they say, well, it's just my cross I have to bear. That's not it. That's a burden. That's something different. There are thorns, like Paul had a thorn in the flesh. There are burdens. And then there is the cross that you have to bear. And that's what you voluntarily are willing to endure to be a follower after Christ and to be a disciple. These early disciples of Christ, they were willing to die. Once the power of the Holy Spirit came on them, it was proof of the resurrection. They went from being cowards to being martyrs. See, Jesus isn't talking about aches and pains. That comes to anybody. But he's talking about that after you've denied yourself, then you've got to put to death the big I, the big ego, the big me. Luke's account of this says that Jesus says we must take up our cross daily. And I think we need to remember that. You see, one of the guiding marks of a disciple should be Galatians 2.20 where the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, if you you ever come with an explanation or understanding in your life what it means to live Galatians 2.20, That says, I don't live anymore, but Christ lives in me because I've been crucified with Christ. I thought about, it came to me this week, reading some other material about this, that the thief on the cross who was repentant was somebody who was crucified with Christ. I mean, he was side by side with Jesus and he was literally crucified with him. But he recognized who Jesus was. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. Now, how, how, how can we identify with that thief? You know, what does it mean that we are crucified with Christ? Well, that thief was literally crucified with Jesus. And when Jesus spoke, the, when he confessed to Jesus and by saying, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said, "They would be in paradise with me. That, that thief didn't care anything else. They could throw anything at him on that cross they wanted to. They could say anything about him. They could tempt him in any way. It didn't matter to him. Because he was dying with Christ. He was being crucified with Christ. And we're going to spend eternity with him. And I think that's what it means for us. When we say that I don't live anymore. But it's Christ who lives in me. And I've been crucified with Christ. It means you've got to die to yourself. Your selfish desires. And you have to live not according to the standards of the world. And whatever the world says to you. But by the standards of the kingdom of God. That's what it means to be crucified with Christ. And then you've got to allow Jesus the throne of your life. Jesus continued by saying, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. His Julia's song to us today was a great challenge about that. So appropriate to follow me. Jesus said, follow me. See, when you follow Jesus, it means you have that heart's desire to obey him in every area of your life and you live for the glory of God. So you desire to follow Jesus, you choose to obey God, and Jesus is the Lord of your life. We've got another diagram. These aren't original with me. You've probably seen them, but you probably need to be reminded of them. You see, this diagram, again, the circle represents your life. The S represents self over here on the side. And on the throne in your life is the cross which represents Christ. That's not where you've made Jesus Lord. That's where you have allowed him to be Lord in your life. Now, what are some signs of a, of a life where Christ is Lord? Well, one of them is you've got a great prayer life. You've got to grow in faith. You have a desire to be obedient for everything that God teaches you in his word and everything that he reveals you through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. You have a desire to fellowship with people. You, you have a desire to learn the word. You're in the word, studying the word. And your life becomes filled with the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit is filling our lives with fruit. Fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You see, that's radically different from a selfish life that says it's all about me. This is where you've committed your life to Christ and you're allowing him to reign and rule in your life as both Lord and Savior. Is that what your life looks like today? Or is it more like where Christ is on the side and... You are still in, in charge of your life calling the shots. Or so maybe Christ is still outside your life. The circle of your life would not include him yet today. You need to make that decision today if you haven't done that. Because that determines the destiny of your eternal soul. And then here's the final thing we say. This third point, And that is invest your life in the kingdom Of God. Jesus put it this way For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Maybe you understand it better if I translate it this way For whoever wants to live for self only. His life he will waste. But whoever surrenders his life for me and for the gospel will live a life that matters for eternity. What good is it for a man, a woman, for a person to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Have you thought about your eternal soul recently? I got my cell phone in my pocket. It's turning on vibrate. Uh, And I told you all some months ago, I think, that in all the time I've had one of these, I have never asked Siri any question. And I said, because I have a wife, three daughters, a daughter-in-law, and six granddaughters. I get enough female advice (laughs) that I don't want to ask her anything. But a question came to me today. I wonder how Siri would answer this question. So uh, I, I, I pulled out my iPhone. Wednesday I think it was punched up Siri and I said, Siri, do you have a soul? Do you have a soul? And you know what she said back to me? She said, I really never have thought about it. I really never have thought about it. Try it on your phone and see if she answers you sometime. Not now, later. (laughs) Some of you already started reaching for your phone. Where's my phone? You know, the biggest concern, there are a lot of people just like Siri who've never thought about their soul. They never knew their soul was their most precious possession. What is your soul worth? There are a lot of different ways you can measure it if you want to put it in some kind of sense of value. I even read somewhere where a guy, 29-year-old uh, university communications instructor, sold his immortal soul on the Internet. Somebody paid $1,325 for it, and I wonder, that's throwing money away. How can you possess somebody's soul? How can you buy it? That, that's impossible. But the best article I read about how you could determine financially the worth of your soul uh, was one that was uh, put out and included an estimate from the government's Environmental Protection Agency of all departments. And the EPA uses what's called a VSL, or the value of a statistical life. In other words, I think saying more than the fact that you're just a statistic as a person in the midst of millions and millions of people, billions maybe. But they give this value of a statistical life. And the last report was in 2013, and it said that every soul was worth about $8.6 million. Now that's fantastic, isn't it? But let me tell you this, your soul is worth far more than that because the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the flesh, came from heaven to earth to die on the cross as a sinner so that he would be crucified for your sin so that you can be forgiven and that you could have a relationship with God and your soul will live in the glories of heaven for all eternity. That's the value of your soul. That's the value of your soul. Quickly, let me say something to our graduates particularly. You know, most times you're going to hear commencement speeches or whatever that they're going to say, go forth and conquer, you know, and bloom where you're planted. And there are a lot of things out there. We still need to find a cure for AIDS and a cure for cancer. And uh, we need to do something to improve the quality of life around the world, even here in America. We need to do something about the lostness around the world, especially in our own country. It's about 65% lost. So I want to say to you, instead of all this stuff about go out and conquer and bloom where you're planted, that the call of Christ on your life is a call to put everything on the line for him. Follow him, like Julia's Song challenged us to do. Lose your life in Christ to save it. Take up your cross in the name of the one who died on the cross for you. I think I heard every one of you going off somewhere to college. Let me tell you this. The first two weeks at college are going to determine how you spend the rest of your life at college. And if you start out in the wrong crowd, you're going to end up in the wrong crowd. But If you start out being faithful and obedient to the faith that's been instilled in you through this church and through your home life, then you will not fail. Don't be ashamed of Christ. Live every day in anticipation of the coming of the Son of Man in glory of his Father and the holy angels. Give yourself to a cause, no matter what you choose as your vocation and what you train to do. Give yourself to a cause that is greater than yourself, where you can invest yourself for all eternity. Some of you might be familiar with the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor who resisted uh, Hitler and Hitler's movement leading up to World War II. And he wrote a book entitled The Cost of Discipleship, still the classic work, I think, about discipleship and being a follower after Christ. And you've got a classic line that says, When a Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, he meant to die to self, just like Christ did. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer also came to know what it meant literally to be willing to die for a cause greater than yourself. You know, he, he, he couldn't continue to oppose Hitler from the pulpit and even preaching on the radio. They, they yanked the plug on the radio. They finally imprisoned him in one of the concentration camps where he stayed for about two years. And then on April 9, 1945, Bonhoeffer was let out one day with several other believers. They were stripped naked, taken to the gallows, and there they were hanged. And he died at a young age. One of his final writings was to a pastor friend in England, and he said, "This is the end, but for me, it is the beginning of life." You know, you can lament his death and say, "Well, how sad he lost his life, such a young age." Think of everything else he could have written and the impact he could have had through his writing and through his preaching. Let me tell you, he didn't lose his life; he gained it. He lost himself in a cause far greater. Than himself. And the result has been. He's impacted millions of disciples. So Let me remind you once again. That your soul is your most precious possession. Do not waste it. The ultimate challenge in life. Is to be a disciple of Christ. Completely sold out. Where you deny yourself. Take up your cross. And you follow after him. And you commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that you lose yourself in the greatest cause, which is the cause of the kingdom. It doesn't matter what your vocation is in life. You can still live for the kingdom of God first and be an ultimate disciple of Jesus Christ. It all begins with making that simple decision, and yet it's so profound. To believe that Jesus is the Christ and he died for your sins. And you confess him with your mouth and believe in your heart. And the Bible says you're saved. And then you allow Christ to become the Lord of your life. And through his Lordship you lose yourself in a cause greater than yourself. May we accept that ultimate challenge. Father, we thank you for the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the example of his life. For his giving of his life on Calvary so that we could know uh, your love, enjoy a relationship with you, spend eternity with you as we know the value of our soul. And I pray, Father, today that there will be those who will make decisions to be disciples of yours, totally sold out for your kingdom and willing to lose themselves in that greater cause known as the kingdom of God. And I pray it in Jesus' name who gave his all for us. Amen.